0: this talk is brought to you by the thomistic institute for more talks like this visit us at thomisticinstitute.org so i want to talk about the problem of suffering and from the perspective of a certain thesis about virtue and and human happiness Um, so the first thing that i want to do is to try to set up the problem in this way the problem of suffering um, because you might not think there's a problem here at all, but perhaps there is. So I'm going to start with a quote from one of my favorite philosophers, Elizabeth Anscombe. Um, and this is a quote from a really famous article that she wrote called modern moral philosophy in which she's summarizing what I'll call the classical view of ethics, the classical view being a view in which you can place, uh, you know, St. Augustine and, and St. Thomas Aquinas uh, within. So here's what Anscombe says. One man, a philosopher, may, may say that since justice is a virtue and injustice a vice, and virtues and vices are built up by the performances of the action in which they are instanced, an act of injustice will tend to make a man bad. And essentially the flourishing of a man qua man consistent as being good, for example, in virtues. But for any acts to which such term to which such terms apply, X needs what makes it flourish. So a man needs or ought to perform only virtuous actions. And even if, as it must be admitted may happen, he flourishes less or not at all in inessentials by avoiding injustice. His life is spoiled in essentials by not avoiding injustice. So he still needs to perform only just actions. This is roughly how Plato and Aristotle talk. It's also roughly how Aquinas talks, by the way. Uh, And then Anscombe goes on to acknowledge that uh, the route from virtue to flourishing isn't really straightforward. So she writes the following. It's a bit much to swallow that a man in pain and hunger and who is poor and friendless is flourishing, as Aristotle himself admitted. Further, someone might say that one at least needs to stay alive to flourish. Another man, unimpressed by all this, will say in a hard case what we need is such and such, and we won't get that without doing this thing, which is unjust. So this is what we ought to do. Another man who does not follow the rather elaborate reasoning of the philosophers simply says, I know it is in any case a disgraceful thing to say that one had better commit this unjust action. Now the man who believes in divine laws will say perhaps it is forbidden, and however it looks, it cannot be to anyone's profit to commit injustice. He, like the Greek philosophers, can think in terms of flourishing. If he's a Stoic, he's apt to have a decidedly strained notion of what human flourishing consists in. If he is a Jew or a Christian, he need not have any distinct notion. The way it will profit him to abstain from injustice is something that he leaves it to God to determine, himself only saying, well, it can't do me any good to go against his law. Okay, so what is Anscombe on about? Well, obviously she's (laughs) worried about the connections between justice and human flourishing, right? She's worried about whether or not the classical view is true. Now it's central to the virtue of justice in particular, that there are certain things that we must never do because that sort of action is to wrong someone. So if we were to commit this sort of action, the wronging someone sort of action, then we would be not exercising justice, but injustice. So, you know, murder, torture, rape, judicial condemnation of the innocent, lying, these are perhaps obvious examples of actions that are unjust because they wrong someone. And the just man is a man who habitually refuses to commit or participate in any unjust actions for fear of any consequences or to obtain any advantage for himself or for anyone else. Right? That's what it is to have justice. But another more positive way to put the same point is in terms of flourishing. So you could just say, well, look, some actions will never contribute to human flourishing such that one never has a reason to perform them. And these actions will never be appealing to a person of good character, a person of virtue. Okay, so that's all like in keeping with the classical view. But now the trouble, I think, starts to emerge. So the trouble is cases where the exercise of virtue, like the virtue of justice, causes great suffering. What are we supposed to say about cases like that? so philosophers are really good at cooking up examples right where unless you perform an unjust act millions of people will die i don't really find these cooked up examples helpful i prefer real life flesh and blood examples um and look there are lots to choose from but one of my personal favorites is the story of boethius right so if you don't know who boethius is Buiti is sort of lived just on the cusp of the Middle Ages. So he's born during the period when the classical Roman empire is kind of in its death throes. So he's born just after the last Roman emperor was deposed and the first barbarian king is put into power in Italy. He's a philosopher. He's kind of a philosopher statesman, right? Like in the model of Plato's Republic. So he's from this really noble family. He's a Senator by age 25, which is pretty impressive um and when he's not discharging the duties of his various political offices he's busy translating aristotle and writing his own philosophical and theological treatises so boethius is like living well <laughs> you know by by the by the classical definition of living well but unfortunately he sort of gets caught up in the political intrigues of his day and he comes out on the wrong side of the barbarian king theodoric and theodoric orders his execution So Boethius dies a cruel and untimely death, but he dies because he refuses to commit injustice, right? He dies, he's executed because he refuses to sin. And he writes this really famous book uh, called The Consolation of Philosophy, sort of in response to the situation in which he finds himself. Um, And I also think it's important to stress just for the purposes of setting up the problem that I want to discuss, that it's not just Boethius who suffers on account of his justice, um, but also those he leaves behind who count on him, right? They are going to suffer enormously as well. So what do we say about a case like Boethius? Well, I mean, prima facie, we may be inclined to say that Boethius would have been better off And those who depended on him would have been better off if he just would have done whatever wicked act Theodoric wanted him to do, right? Maybe it's a one-off thing, you know, just do this one unjust thing. And then you can go back to the justice thing. Um, Alternatively, we may be inclined to say that this sort of case shows, right? This is a, a classic case that shows that justice can just be incompatible with human flourishing. Um, At least in certain circumstances, Um, you know, so the idea is, look, I mean, we know as a, as a matter of fact, that virtue, it might, it might lead to a flourishing life, but it also might land you in prison, force your children into poverty and get you killed. Right. So (laughs) what are we, what are we supposed to say about this? Um, So I think theoretically, there are several options we can take the first option is that we can just take this to be a counterexample to the classical view and we can reject the classical view. That's, um, that's an option that lots of people have taken. Um, second, we can sort of um, amend the classical view as we've stated it so far, just to acknowledge that virtue alone does not suffice for human flourishing. So it's necessary, but not sufficient. You know, the world also has to do you a favor. Um, you could be a great person, but then also just suffer suffer from misfortune through no fault of your own, um, and your life kind of ends in tragedy. This is kind of what Aristotle ends up saying in the Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, third, you could go the Stoic route and just insist that getting executed is is no big deal; <laughs> it's no real loss for the virtuous person. Uh, you know that that's a venerable option. Um, or there's a fourth option. And th- that's the one that I want to explore in this talk. And that is that you can work towards a conception of human nature, virtue and flourishing in which suffering and sacrifice are at the heart of the account. So you can say that suffering and sacrifice are part of a flourishing human life. And so that's that's kind of you know where I want to end up um, because according to that vision, We can recognize that Boethius suffers and sacrifices, right? uh, For the sake of his vision of the good, right? But this suffering and sacrifice are part of his flourishing rather than at odds with it. Okay, so that's what I wanna end up saying. Um, but now I'm going to try to get at this problem by looking at what some contemporary Aristotelians say about this stuff. Um, so I started with Elizabeth Anscombe, but now I want to talk about Anscombe's uh, close friend, Philippa Foote. So Foote interests me because she draws heavily and explicitly on the thought of Thomas Aquinas, um, but she's an atheist, Right. Um, So whatever sense in which she's a Thomist, it's it's a very limited sense. Um, But she's trying to put the thought of Aquinas um, into conversation with contemporary philosophers. And for that reason, I find her to be an incredibly valuable interlocutor. Now, Foote seeks to defend the idea that the virtuous life is the sort of life that makes a human being fit to experience happiness, Um, In fact, she suggests that happiness is the best description of the human good or human flourishing, right? So happiness is the proper name. But really, there are two main questions for foot when it comes to thinking about virtue and happiness. First, does virtue ever require that we sacrifice our happiness? And second, can happiness be attained through wicked acts, right? Um, And both of those questions are going to bear on the Boethius case. So from the outside of her discussion, Foote concedes that there is a usage of the word happiness, which maybe people at Yale are familiar with, that is really quite shallow. um, And it has nothing to do with her thesis, right? Um, The sort of happiness that she is after is by contrast to the shallow view, deep, right? Um, Now the shallow view of happiness that she wants to reject is that happiness that is uh, completely cashed out in subjectivist terms, right? Positive feelings, moods, pleasures, um, whatever it is that happiness is, it's a um, its a—it's a collection of mostly positive psychological states. So she wants to reject this. And here's a quote from, from Philippa Foote from her book, Natural Goodness. So Foote writes, we are tempted to think of deep happiness as explicable psychologically in a way that makes it possible to separate it from its objects. But why should this be possible? Why shouldn't the communality of meaning not depend here on a shared reaction among human beings to certain things that are very general in human life? Are not these reactions shared even by people of very different cultures? Not, of course, exactly, but nevertheless, with sufficient similarity for people of one age or culture to understand the depth of happiness over a birth and the depth of grief about the death of a parent, child or friend. Thus, possible objects of deep happiness seem to be things that are basic in human life, such as home and family and work and friendship. And also mentions that for others, the great joy of their life can be the quest for truth or beauty or in serving others in meaningful but simple ways, right? These are also objects of deep human happiness. So Foote thinks we should be suspicious of the idea that our principal concept of happiness refers, like I said, only to a positive state of mind divorced from what is objectively good. And of course, I think she's absolutely right about this. Because if that were what happiness picks out, then it's not clear why it's a worthy goal, let alone a proper name for human flourishing. However, um, I think we also need to recognize that a positive psychological condition is happy in, in one important sense. So happiness does have a subjective and an objective component to it. And um, I think we can all agree that a positive state of mind is, in some sense, good and in some sense a part of what we mean by happiness. Um, But happiness cannot be reduced to a positive state um, without becoming shallow, because if it's reduced to just a positive psychological state, then it becomes detached from reality. Right, And if it's detached from reality, then it has no real connection to living well as a human being because it has no real connection anymore to communion with human goods. Okay, but even if we're armed with this deeper conception of happiness, can we really rule out the possibility of a wicked man attaining it? So Foote says, can we not imagine a Nazi commandant call him Z who was not ashamed of the pleasure he took in tormenting and destroying the inmates of his camp, who believed that he was doing good and helping to purify the Aryan race, who saw himself as serving a very great cause. Foot thinks that the sad truth is that this might be possible to a certain extent, right? Um, But she also thinks that we would not want to admit that we would benefit such a man if we aided him or allowed him or helped him to engage in these behaviors, if we didn't push back in some way, which itself suggests that we do not think he is flourishing in an unqualified sense. So whatever sense in which we can say is he is happy, it's not the deepest sense that is the goal of a human life. But also thinks that we can see the connection between virtue and happiness by focusing on men who courageously faced death and active resistance to the Nazis. So this is a group of men that she calls the letter writers because most of what we know about them, we know from letters that they wrote from prison to their families. So these letter writers, as she calls them, were obviously very virtuous men and their virtue comes out in their letters and also in the testimony to their lives both before and after their imprisonment. Now, Foote resists the idea that we should say that the letter writers sacrificed their happiness for the life of virtue. Rather, she thinks we should say that happiness was not possible for them because there was no just or honorable means for them to return to their families or their work, that is to say the context in which they could experience the sorts of goods in which a happy human life consists. So Foote's analysis of the letter writers leads her to the following conclusion. Well, the letter writers and commandancy. We have an understanding of the word happiness that is close to Aristotle's eudaimonia and the operation and conformity with the virtues belongs to its meanings. In my own terminology, happiness is here understood as the enjoyment of good things, meaning enjoyment and attaining and in pursuing right ends. I do not, however, accept the identification of happiness with a life of virtue or the idea that a loss incurred through action necessary for virtue is no loss at all. This seems to me to allow too little for the genuine tragedy that there may be in a moral life. I myself would rather say that there is indeed a kind of happiness that only goodness can achieve, but that by one of the evil chances of life, it may be out of the reach of even the best of men right? So on this analysis, by the evil chances of life, happiness was out of the reach of someone like Boethius. So on this view, virtue is no guarantee for happiness. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Um, The best sort of human happiness is secured by virtue, right? But the evil chances of life can just bring you to ruin through no fault of your own. A tragic outcome is always possible even for the best sort of people. And I think for Foote, this is just one obvious way of reading Aristotle. Now I wanna disagree with Foote here. Um, So first, I think we need to remember that the letter writers suffer because of the great wickedness and injustice of the Nazi regime, not simple bad luck or the evil chances of life. And it makes perfect sense on Foote's own view that vice would bring about great human suffering. But the question remains whether these men are best understood as tragic figures nevertheless. I would say that they are not. Rather, I would say that they display heroic virtues, and that these virtues secure for them a noble death, a kind of happy death. And I think we ought not to feel sorry for them, but to admire them a great deal. And we should hope that if we were ever in a similar situation, we would be able to act similarly. So if that's what I think the proper analysis is of the letter writers, then we have to ask the question, what goes wrong with Foote's analysis? Well, I think several things go wrong, (laughs) but for now, the most salient feature of it is that she seems to conceive of happiness or flourishing in a way that is sort of individualistic or atomistic, as if flourishing were a kind of private good or an individual benefit, right? um, That falls onto an individual person. Now, I think this is true neither to human nature or to human experience. I think that foot was correct to perceive that we cannot conceptualize happiness or flourishing independent from communion with real human goods. Um, But I don't think she realizes that some of the goods she picks out as essential to human flourishing are what the classical view calls Common goods, right? So basically, there's a distinction between private goods and common goods, and it's best exemplified by just saying what common goods are like. And they have three basic features. The first is that um, they're common by nature, so it's common to humans to seek and enjoy these goods. They're not competitive, such that my pursuit of such a good in no way detracts from anyone else's pursuit of such a good and they're participatory in the sense that they're brought into being and they're enjoyed together. So and and you know, a private good um you know is competitive and is not participatory. We cannot arrive at a fully satisfactory picture of what is good in itself for a human being to be or to do or to experience without simultaneously arriving at a picture of human flourishing that is adequate for entire communities of human beings who flourish, not alone, but together. That is to say, whose happiness is a common good. Um, And if we say that, then we have to acknowledge that the political environment, right, is necessarily a part of objective human flourishing. Individual character never was and never could be enough, right, and if we accept that, then again, it's not um, just bad luck that the letter writers um, were put in an unhappy situation. Okay, so it's the nature of common goods that they depend on shared activities and shared forms of life. And that is why friendship, right, capaciously understood in the sort of classical sense to subsume the mutual affection between husband and wife, parents and children, siblings and cousins, friends, neighbors, and fellow citizens. So, you know, a very broad conception of friendship. Um, Friendship is really at the heart of a good human life. Um, And friendship is one of the goods that Foote herself um, mentions in her conception of deep happiness. So one thing that I wanna say about friendship that I think bears on the problem of suffering is that friendship involves a self-transcendent perspective in which one sees one's life and one's good in relation to a greater whole, right? So a friend understands him or herself as a part in the specific sense of a participant, in a union of affection and will with other persons. So when you're in the sort of loving relationship that is a friendship, then one's own happiness is now bound up in intricate ways with the happiness of the friend, right? So you say things like, if my friend suffers, I suffer. If my friend flourishes, I flourish. You can only really do this in a meaningful way if you think of friendship as a common good. So once we switch gears to thinking of happiness as our common good and the happy life as a life of friendship with others, then we think of virtue as ordered not to our private benefit, right? But to our flourishing with and for other persons. And once we've made that conceptual switch, then I think we're in a better position to talk about the fourth option, right? Which is that suffering and sacrifice are part of, a flourishing human life and not at odds with it. That is to say, when we look to virtuous exemplars, right? The people that we want to imitate when we grow in virtue, we see people who suffer and sacrifice for the sake of loving other people for higher common goods. And so we should expect as part of a flourishing human life to be ready and happy to suffer and sacrifice for other people. And if we accept suffering and sacrifice as part of a flourishing human life, then I think we are inclined to read the situation of Boethius and the letter writers in a more positive way. So now I want to say something more about the connection between suffering, sacrifice, and the development and exercise of virtue. Okay. So let's just take it for granted. Like, I'm not gonna argue for it. Let's just take it for granted that virtue is what is necessary to secure the goods that constitute human flourishing. So I wanna argue that suffering and sacrifice is essential, both to the cultivation and exercise of virtue, and thus also it is central to the wise person, um, the practically wise person's self-conception of what he is and the shape of what it means for him to live well, right? So it's it's sort of central to his vision of what it means for him to live well. So another way to put this point is that a practically wise person, a virtuous person will know how to suffer well and will be willing to make many sacrifices as part of his overall flourishing. And I think this is missing from Foote's analysis, but would uh, improve it substantially. So the first point that I wanna make, I think is fairly anodyne, but it's neglected and therefore it's worth emphasizing. And that is just the point that the only path to the cultivation of virtue, of being generally disposed to do what one knows living well consists in at the right time and in the right circumstances and with ease and pleasure The only path to that is through sacrifice and suffering. There's no other route. (laughs) So just to give an example, in order to cultivate temperance, I must sacrifice the satisfaction of urgent bodily appetites um, and the overwhelming pleasures they afford me when immediately indulged. Right. I've got to give that up. And at first, of course, this is difficult and painful. I suffer the loss of the pleasure I know I would otherwise enjoy, but I suffer for the sake of a potential future good, right? The condition in which I will experience the right amount of pleasure and want nothing more. Now that sort of condition again will not come easily and there is no path to it without the suffering of what the classical view calls continence, right? Which is not yet virtue because it's not. um, So if you're merely continent, you do the right thing, but not with ease and pleasure because you don't yet have the proper disposition that would allow you to do it with ease and pleasure. Um, but at any rate, it'll just be part of my self-conception as a person striving towards virtue that of course I'm willing to suffer and sacrifice for this goal. Um, because the gratification of my bodily appetites is not my highest good. And I know this, right. Um, So that seems anodyne and easy, but important. And similarly, right, in order to become just, so it's not just temperance, um, but this is true actually, I think for all of the virtues. In order to become just, I will need to make many sacrifices for other people and be open to suffering harms. And this has to do again with what I take justice to be. So a person on the way to justice realizes that it is better to suffer harm than to inflict it upon other people. Um, So what it means then to become just is to become the sort of person who is willing to suffer harms rather than inflict them on other people. Okay, another anodyne point that is often neglected but worth mentioning. The sort of goods that are at the center of a flourishing human life are demanding goods. They demand suffering and sacrifices of us. Um, And here I'll just take an example from Foote. This is when she's trying to contrast shallow versus deep happiness. So Foote mentions uh, Wittgenstein as having had a wonderful life devoted to the relentless pursuit of truth as a human good. Now, no one who knows anything about Wittgenstein's biography would say that he was happy in the sense of experiencing mostly positive affective states, right? He was, um, much of his life seemed to consist in really torturous pursuit of the dissolution of philosophical puzzles kind of wrestling with language and concepts that might be described as a sort of noble struggle, but a struggle, right? That brought about enormous personal suffering and self-imposed sacrifices of other obviously important human goods. Um, But this suffering and these sacrifices allowed Wittgenstein to enter into deep contemplative friendships with other people in search of truth, right? One of his closest friends, by the way, was Elizabeth Anscombe. Um, Okay, so I think that's that's another point uh, that's that's worth emphasizing as we think about how suffering and sacrifice is, uh, you know, a a part of a flourishing human life. So I want to now move on to talking about the suffering and sacrifices that we make for other people. Obviously, I, I often have to sacrifice for the sake of my children and for my spouse, right? So I'm a wife and a mother and, and I have I, I live in family life. Uh, and I have certainly sacrificed um, a lot for them, right? I've sacrificed uh, career opportunities um, and other things because I know that taking advantage of those opportunities would benefit me at their expense, right? But because I also see that we flourish together, I see that I have reasons to give up things that benefit me privately for the sake of a higher common good. Um, I should say that at this point, (laughs) um, at this point in the argument, I find drawing on Dante's imaginative vision of purgatory helpful. So if if you're familiar with Dante's Purgatory, which is just one part of um, a larger poem called the Divine Comedy, Purgatory is like a mountain um, in Dante's vision that we have to struggle to climb up and at the top of the mountain is earthly paradise and earthly happiness. Now, when we reach paradise, we're able to just sort of follow our pleasures. Why is that? Well, because once you get to the top of Mount Purgatory, your loves, your desires have been purified and they're now properly ordered. But you only got to that condition uh, by struggling up this mountain, right? So you only got to earthly paradise through suffering. Um, So Dante's vision is sort of like the suffering of purgatory heals the wounds of sin, um, where sin is sort of like these bad vicious tendencies in us that keep us from being truly happy. Now, it's obvious that Dante's poem is about, you know, the immortal soul and his vision is theological, but there's a secular analog there that I think is fairly clear, right? That the, that the path to a kind of earthly paradise is through suffering. Um, paradise is not an easy climb. So I think that these points show us that it really is actually part of our everyday conception of an excellent human life, that it involves suffering and sacrifice. So it's not simply a question of whether the world does us a favor or not. The good itself is pretty demanding of us and we suffer and sacrifice for its sake. I think it's also part of the ordinary person's vision of flourishing that they see themselves as parts in the sense of participants and something greater than themselves. And this too is the basis of their willingness to suffer and sacrifice because they don't understand their own flourishing just in terms of individual benefit, right? And I think this explains, or this is the beginning of an explanation about why some people really are happy to make ultimate sacrifices. Right. So you can think of a mother who does not think twice about what is doing necessary to protect her children, even if that means laying down her own life. So you can think of a mother who refuses cancer treatments so that her unborn child can live. Um, Such a mother might do so happily in the knowledge that she was able to give her child the gift of life, something that only she can do for her, sort of an ultimate loving act. Foote wishes to say that for such a woman, happiness is not possible, but this judgment rests on an unduly narrow conception of happiness. Of course, death is bad and we shouldn't seek it out, but we're also mortal and we must understand in a deep way that we will die and that we do not control how this will happen. And of course, there's also some obvious distinction to be drawn between a happy and an unhappy death. So, Dying in a plane crash seems like an unhappy death. (laughs) Um, But forcing one's own plane to crash in a field in order to thwart an unprecedented terrorist attack on one's own nation right, doesn't necessarily seem like an unhappy death, but more like an act of heroism. So you can think of the men who decided to crash into a field rather than be crashed into the US Capitol building. Those men presumably knew that they were not benefiting themselves, right, in crashing the plane, but doing something in service of their country and their fellow citizens, just as men who die in battle do. To rise to such occasion is not necessarily to resign oneself to a cruel fate, but to sacrifice oneself for a greater good, right? Such a sacrifice can be a good and noble death, and death is part of life, right? And I think what we have to do is we need to pay attention to the self-transcendent character of human flourishing and the goods that constitute it in order to appreciate these kinds of ultimate sacrifices. Um, Okay, so I wanna return now again to the letter writers. So obviously, Foot wants to say that happiness is not possible for them, but if you actually read the letters, which I have, they describe themselves as happy, right? So in a letter to his children, one of the pastors writes that if he is sent to the camps, the family members should reconcile themselves to it cheerfully because they must always remember that we are born to bear one another's suffering, right? And this is good. The letter writers describe their time in prison as monastic, as a time that affords them the solitude and the space to partake, to partake in the goods of contemplation. They write that they are enormously grateful for these joys, right? So here's a quote, in quiet and in solitude, alone with God and his word, any one of us here has an abundance that of which formerly he had or took too little. The letters are shot through with gratitude. This is one of the most striking features of them to partake in and enjoy the fruits of steady contemplation, to bear the sufferings of others, to be able to sacrifice all that they have for the sake of their love of Christ and their dedication to the mission of their churches. Many of the letter writers believe that their sacrifices are generative, that they will seed future growth of the church in which they are so invested. This future growth does not benefit them directly, right? They're gonna die. Um, But the value of it isn't its contribution to them directly, but again, to future generations who may come to learn of and share in the mission and common life and goods of the church. The letter writers do seem happy insofar as they are able to understand their circumstances and their actions as contributing to or participating in greater common goods that their sacrifice will inspire others to live rightly as the gospel teaches, that it will bring honor to their families, that they're able to give glory and honor to God and country, right? These thoughts make them happy. They are in fact happy and grateful to make great sacrifices so that these goods can be sustained for others beyond themselves. While it is true that none of them would have or could have chosen to be executed or imprisoned, That these evils befell them did not take away the possibility of happiness within the circumstances they found themselves. One pastor was tortured to death, but to the very end he continued to give others consolation and help. This was part of the testimony about his life. We do not need to say that he was happy in his torture. This would be to collapse into stoicism. But we can nevertheless recognize that sometimes the best one can do is not given to despair, which he did not. There is a dignity and a nobility in this that is a form of human excellence, exemplified in heroic suffering. I think it's obvious that we live in an age that is allergic to sacrifice and suffering, but I also think this is sort of deeply unhealthy, right? A culture that cannot explain the value of sacrifice is a profoundly immature culture. I think it belongs to the human to grasp the connection between making sacrifices for what one takes to be ultimately good. This is why divine worship has traditionally taken the form of a sacrifice. This is not a cultural accident. Um, It is a grasp of, of something that is true. I also wanna say on Foote's behalf that I think she's right to castigate any kind of neo-stoicism that insists that the virtuous who sacrifice their lives experience no real loss. A sacrifice uh, is always an offering or a giving up of something that is really good and that one really desires such that one will really <laughs> suffer a loss in giving it up, right? So you can think of a Lenten sacrifice It's no real sacrifice to give up something that you don't really like. Like if you gave up yams for Lent, that's really no sacrifice unless you're really gonna suffer their absence, right? Most people don't really suffer the absence of yams in their life. So again, to sacrifice is by definition to suffer a loss, but if one is able to understand this loss as demanded by the good, then one can suffer willingly and even joyfully as a genuine sacrifice, right? And the fact that parents can and do sacrifice mightily and happily for their children ought to make us tall into question any conception of flourishing that rules it out, right? Um, So we can look to these relationships, parent, spouse, friend, neighbor, these roles and these relationships give our lives purpose and allow us to enter into a space of common goods that we can obviously take to be higher, right, than private or individual benefit all of these relationships necessarily involve sacrifice and suffering. There's no way to love someone without suffering and sacrificing for them. Okay, so I think we can begin to see here um, the inklings of an important insight, right? Which is that suffering is very often the path to virtue and also very often the occasion of its expression, right? So another way to put the point is to say that suffering has real redemptive potential, but it depends on us to see this potential and to realize it. Now, in order to do this, to see this potential and realize it, we have to be willing and able to look to the wider context of how our lives are part of a greater whole beyond ourselves. The letter writers did this, and Lady Philosophy teaches Boethius how to do this as well. The letter writers are able to suffer well because they're able to make sense of their suffering by seeing it as a part of something much larger than themselves. They see themselves as witnesses to the truth of what is most important in life. They understand the blood they shed as water for the future seeds of the church. They understand that they do not live for themselves alone and that what they do in this moment has both a historical and a kind of cosmic significance. And I think it's no surprise that Lady Philosophy cures Boethius's depression by giving him a lecture on the difference between bad luck and providence. She reminds Boethius that his life is part of a larger order that does make sense, even if he does not see this. She invites him to understand his situation and his suffering in this larger context and to trust in God's providential love and care for him. So now I think we can sort of throw these um, philosophical musings on virtue and suffering and sacrifice into a more explicitly theological register, right? As Christians, we see our suffering and our sacrifices ultimately in light of providence and theological virtue. We recognize what Foote cannot, that the letter writers had the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and that we can't really understand their actions apart from them. We know that they live in imitation of Christ. They themselves said this in their letters. Christ who is the model of suffering and sacrifice for love of others. And finally, I just wanna return once more to Dante's purgatory. Dante asks us to see the redemptive potential of suffering. In purgatory, this is quite explicit. We can also see it in our own lives. Bad things happen to us. The people we love die. We get sick and old. We are subject to forces of nature that are hostile to us. We suffer the consequences of the sins of others and of our own sins. But part of what it means to be, again, practically wise, is to accept one's suffering and to do one's best to see what one can make from it. We can either feel sorry for ourselves or we can try to see what potential for good is inherent in our suffering. Here, we are not alone, right? As Christians, we know that our suffering is not in vain and that God allows us to suffer for the sake of our ultimate good. So all of our suffering can be a clarification for us of what our true good consists in. And that good will, right, be worth suffering and sacrificing for. And I think we must also realize as Christians that in our suffering, God may be trying to work a change in us that is very painful, but necessary, right? This is the sort of change that the suffering on Mount Purgatory is supposed to bring about. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering, it's suffering for the sake of the good. And I also think on this point, that in suffering God may be trying to work a change in us that is very painful but necessary. Um, We can look to the fiction of of Flannery O'Connor, right? It's really rather quite brilliant. Um, We see in all of her stories, her characters suffer greatly, right? But that this suffering is, is really the work of God's grace in and upon them. And of course, what Flannery's fiction tries to show is that God's grace is not always a comfort, and that a mature Christian has to understand this. Right? Okay, so in conclusion, I want to say this about the problem of suffering from the perspective of virtue and happiness. Suffering is an unavoidable fact of human life, and the only real question is how we understand and react to it. If we suffer in hope and friendship together, then our suffering can indeed be a part of a flourishing life. And if we have a vision of flourishing, according to which an ultimate sacrifice of our lives for the good makes sense, then we can even have the consolation um, that what might otherwise look like a tragic death can be a noble and excellent thing.